What's up, people? Hey, uh, any Valentine's fans out there? Any Valentine's Day? Whoa! I didn't think anybody would admit that publicly. That's cool. Glad for you. Um, I'm indifferent on the matter, but uh, anyway, so I came across a Valentine's Day card the other day. I don't know if it's funny or sad or somewhere in between. Uh, if you can't read it, it says, thanks for not ghosting me. Happy Valentine's Day. And, uh, you know, I, it made me chuckle a little bit because, honestly, it mostly reminded me of a story uh, that I, I guess, somewhat ironically, actually in college, I was ghosted, uh, not on Valentine's Day, but kind of around Valentine's Day. So uh, I'll tell you the story. Um, there was a girl, uh, of course, and um, it, it was kind of one of those situations where, like, we were friends, uh, we kind of did the whole, like, yay, we're going to talk a lot, a lot of time around each other. And, uh, you know, I was the kind of guy, though, that, like, I don't know about you, but I was the kind of guy that um, I wouldn't ask somebody out unless, like, I was totally convinced that, that she would reciprocate and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm into you. And, and so what I would do is, is you know, I'd do all my homework, I'd, I'd talk to all her friends or all their whatever, and uh, make sure that I knew that she would say yes before I actually asked her out. And so that's what I did. I, I did my homework, I find out, hey, is she into me? Yeah, she's into you, whatever, okay, great. Uh, will you go on a date? And, and she says yes, and we go on a great date. I remember nothing about it except for one conversation, and it was a conversation that we had had about Valentine's Day. And in this conversation, on this great date, she proceeds to tell me how much she hates Valentine's Day, right? So, you know, I'm first date guy. I'm trying to pay attention and, you know, really take note of all the things she's saying. So I hate Valentine's Day. But she goes on to say, but I really love Valentine's candy. I love conversation hearts, you know, the little hearts. I, I love chocolate strawberries. I, I, I love flowers. So I'm like, so, you, so, so all I hear is... Uh, I really love Valentine's Day. Please get me flowers and candy when Valentine's Day happens. So, right, uh, because, you know, I'm reading through the lines. I'm trying to figure this girl out. And so kind of challenge accepted is, is how I interpreted uh, what she was saying to me. And, but, you know, the thing is, like, I like this girl. And, and I, you know, I just kind of needed to do something more than handing her some candy or some flowers. And so what did I do? I got Truman the Tiger to do that. Um, she was a golden girl. And, and Mizzou had a home basketball game. And so uh, it's not a flex, this is not my wife, so uh, it doesn't end well. Um, so so <laughs> I know someone who knows someone who knows Truman the Tiger. And so uh, I work my connections out. She's a golden girl. I get Truman hooked up with a bag of conversation hearts and have Truman deliver these conversation hearts to this girl during a timeout at a home basketball game, thinking this is amazing. I am a genius right? I get her friends. I had some flowers and some chocolates put in her room. It's just like the whole deal. Like, I'm amazing. And uh, just can't wait for, you know, this text or this call after she gets home. You know, in hindsight, I think I went too hard in the paint before date number two, because rather than, rather than telling me how wonderful I was or how great of an idea it all was or, or thank you so much for actually not listening to the thing that I was saying and really catching what I was trying to say, she literally said nothing. Like, she ghosted me. And when I mean ghost, it wasn't like next day. It's like, I didn't hear back from her. A week later, I finally talked to a friend, and she was like, hey, she told you she didn't like Valentine's Day. What were you thinking? I was like, I don't know. I thought that meant she liked Valentine's Day, and she wanted some candy. So uh, game over. That was that. And so I suppose the moral of that story is don't let Truman get involved in your dating life. Um, it doesn't go well, Right? Uh, but enough about me. What, what about you? Uh, hard transition, but, but what about you? Have you ever 
Have you ever gone through something like that? Like, have you ever been ghosted? Of course, I don't expect that you're like, yes, I've been ghosted by someone I gave Truman, you know. No, not like that, but like, have you ever been ghosted? You know, has someone, you know, ever kind of, uh, you know, there was some sort of relationship there, and then all of a sudden it was just cut off. Now, I hear some yeses, and and that's because statistically speaking, I learned this this week, statistically speaking, most of you in this room, myself included, have. So, so I found a study from, uh, it's the Thriving Center of Psychology, and they released this study recently. This is from a couple months ago. They say this. This is the findings of this particular survey. 65% of Gen Z and millennials have ghosted someone. 84% have been ghosted. So 65% of your and my peers have ghosted someone. And 84% of us, at least according to this one study, have been ghosted ourselves. Now, of course, the question then becomes, and if you've been ghosted, you're left wondering this question too. Why? Why would someone do this? Well, one of the other findings of this study is the number one reason why people ghost, you know what it is? They want to avoid confrontation, right? Which, you know, you say it out loud and you're like, well, yeah, duh. Because it's easier to ghost someone than it is to to deal with the discomfort. It's it's easier to ghost someone than to deal with maybe the awkwardness. It's easier to ghost someone than, than to deal with an uncomfortable situation. And so 65% have ghosted and 84% of us have been ghosted. So I want you to think about that for a second because what this means is, is, is that, that your peers, mine too, your peers are increasingly choosing comfort. They're, they're increasingly choosing kind of the, the easy way out when, when issues come up or, or when hard things happen or when awkwardness enters into the relationship. And at the same time, more and more of us, because of our experience, 84%, right, are, are living or starting to live with this low-key anxiety that at some point, someone is going to do this to me. We've got this low-key anxiety because this is our lived experience, that, that, that 84% of us have been ghosted, that, that someone is going to just cut off a relationship. It could be a dating relationship. It could be a friend relationship. And so either way, whether it's a friendship or a a dating relationship, you know, when that happens, how how does it make us feel? Not good, right? It doesn't feel good to be ghosted. It's confusing. Maybe makes us angry. Certainly we start to feel some insecurity. We we feel abandoned or or like we're inadequate. Maybe that there's something wrong with us. See, when people ghost us, we, it hurts. It hurts. And of course, that's true when it happens with people, but what about when it happens with God? What? See, I say that because I know that there are some of you right now, that's exactly how you feel. Your lived experience tells you that there's reason to be confused, that there's reason to be angry, You feel hurt because you feel like God has ghosted you. You feel like God has bailed on you, that he's gotten out of the relationship, like there's something wrong with you because you're inadequate. 
Others of you, though, maybe, maybe that's not totally how you feel, but, but you're left asking the question because you're sitting here looking at these stats and saying, man, 64% of us in the room have ghosted someone and, and, and 84% of, or whatever the number is, have, have been ghosted ourselves. So is, this is what people do. Is this what God does? If people are made in the image of God and, and this seems to be our cultural moment, this is what we do, is, is that what the God that we claim to follow, is that what he does? Is that what God's like? I mean, this is what our peers are doing. The people around us, well, is that what he's like? When the, the relationship gets hard, when, when it gets messy, inevitably when I make a mistake, because we'll all make mistakes or do something silly or, or do something awkward, is, is that what God, is God gonna have the same response to me that my peers will? I'm out, cut off, no more. Not at all according to Exodus 34. Not according to Exodus. We've, we've been in this series. We've been saying this for weeks now. We've been in this series in Exodus 34 in the Old Testament where we're talking about the name that God reveals of himself, Yahweh. And more specifically now, we've been in these weeks where we're starting to talk about, okay, what is Yahweh like? What is Yahweh like? This is what we see tonight, Exodus 34. I hope that these verses, I know that we've been saying them every week, I hope that they're starting to sit with you. I hope maybe even that you're memorizing them and, and, and thinking about them and reflecting on them and carrying them with you throughout the week. This is what we read. And Yahweh passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, we've been talking over the last several weeks about what does it mean that, that God names himself, that, that God reveals his name, and then we talked about that, that God is compassionate and gracious and why that's significant and what that means for us. And last week, Alex talked to us about why it's significant that God is slow to anger, why that's good news. And tonight we get to the part where God says, this is what I'm like. I am abounding in love. I am abounding in faithfulness. I maintain love to thousands of generations is the implication. Now I want you to notice something. Notice that this word love right here, it's repeated. Remember, remember in Hebrew, the, the language that this is written in, ancient Hebrew, they, they didn't have italics, they didn't have bolding, they didn't have underlining. What they did to emphasize a point is, is to repeat something, right? So what is God telling us? He wants us to know. It, it was their way, repeating things was their way, the author's way of saying, pay attention. Don't miss this. And so what God wants us to pay attention to, what he wants us to make sure that you and I don't miss is that this is who he is. He is abounding in love. He maintains love to thousands of generations. Now again, if that's true, then what does it mean, right? Because if this is so important that the, the, the author wants us to not miss it, that, that he wants us to pay attention to it, if it's so important that he would repeat it, and it's the only thing that's repeated other than God's name, then we gotta make sure that we understand what he's, what he's actually saying, what God means when he says that he's abounding in love, that he maintains love. You see, I say that because I think in our culture, for, love, for us, what? Love is a feeling, Right? 
Like, we see this all over. We see it on ads. We see it, you know, I mean, Kesha is, is you know, talking about love being a drug, and Beyonce is drunk on love, and, and don't even get me started on Taylor Swift, right? But it's this, it's just this feeling, right? It's, it's this thing that we're chasing because love is intoxicating. It's intoxicating. But you see, that's not the kind of love that God is talking about in Exodus 34 at all. No, the word that God uses for love is, is the Hebrew word hesed. Now, I feel like we say this every week, so you just gotta bear with me. It's, it's one of these words that it's, it's really difficult to translate. And so if, if you had five different English Bibles in here, and this isn't to undermine your confidence in your English Bible, you can have a high level of confidence that when you open up your Bible, you are getting the words of God. But, but it is, what, what I wanna say is on this particular word, you open up five different Bibles and you probably have five different ways of talking about this. So sometimes that word hesed, the Hebrew word that gets translated in this verse as love, sometimes it's also translated as, as steadfast love or unfailing love. Or, or covenant love, or, or, or even covenant loyalty. And so, so what I want you to have is the sense, what, what I want, we'll come back to that word covenant in a second, but what I want you to get for now is that when God talks about himself as abounding in love, when he says, this is what I'm like, pay attention, I maintain love to thousands of generations, he's not talking about a feeling. It's more about his loyalty to us. He's persistent. He's trust or he's steadfast. He's unfailing. That's what he's like. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's abounding in persistent, loyal love. But he also says that he's abounding in faithfulness. He's abounding in faithfulness. Now, what does this mean? It's interesting, this word faithfulness, it comes from the, the Hebrew word truth. And so what God is saying is that, that everything he says is true. That God is totally reliable, 100% of the time, all of the time, God can be trusted. He is reliable, he is trustworthy, he is faithful, not just sometime, all the time. So, so check this out. This is kind of interesting. I, I just learned this uh, a few days ago even. This is, um, I think we have a picture of it. Yeah, this is the Hebrew alphabet. It's a little grainy. Um, Hebrew's written right to left, not left to right like us. So, so here's the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet. Here's the end. And, and I've got, notice these three boxes that are highlighted here and here and here. It's the Hebrew letters, Aleph, Mame, and Tav. And, and these three letters are the three letters that make up the word faithful that we see here in Exodus 34. But I also want you to pay attention that, that the first letter is the very beginning of the alphabet, the middle letter is the very middle of the alphabet, and the very last letter is the very last letter of the alphabet. And so what is God teaching us about himself just in the actual letters of the word? Well, I think it's that, that he's faithful to us, that he's trustworthy, that he's reliable in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. That's what he wants us to know, that he abounds in love, in faithfulness, that he's loyal to us, that he never abandons his people. So Psalm 100, it's this psalm of praise, this psalm of thankfulness for, for who Yahweh is. It reads this. It says, shout for joy to Yahweh, all the earth. 
Worship Yahweh with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that Yahweh is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for Yahweh is good and his love endures forever. Forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. See, this this theme that, that God's love, I mean, you could see this hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and that's not even an exaggeration. This theme that, that God's love, that Yahweh's love for his people, it endures forever, that his faithfulness, it continues to all, it's repeated over and over and over. It is one of the central themes of, of who God is. And it's not just towards other people, it's towards you and me, towards all of us. Now, maybe that raises a question. If, if this is who God is, this sounds really great. It sounds really great, right? We, we want to follow a God like that. But why doesn't it always feel like that? If God is abounding in love, if God is abounding in faithfulness, then why am I still single? If God is abounding love, his love endures forever, his, his faithfulness continues to generations, why can't I get over my crippling anxiety? Why won't it just go away? If God is abounding in love and faithfulness, why have my friends betrayed me? Why did they do that thing? If God is loving and faithful, then why is my family so broken? Why did my parents have to get a divorce? If God is so loving and so faithful, why can't I find a job after graduation? If God is so loving and faithful, then, then why did this thing have to happen in my life right now? That's how it feels sometimes, yeah? I mean, we're human. We can acknowledge that. that that's... Those kinds of things happen and they leave us questions. How do we reconcile God's love that, that God says, this is what I'm like. I'm abounding in love. I maintain love to thousands of generations. It endures forever. And, and I'm abounding in faith. How do we reconcile that, that God is loving and faithful towards us, but also that it doesn't seem to always fit our lived experience? See, that's a really good question. It's an honest question. It's a hard question. And I think because of that, I think it's an important question. But we won't be able to get to an answer to that question unless we understand another word. And it's the word that I said we'd come back to, and that word is covenant. Now, we don't really use that word anymore. You, you probably don't use the word covenant on kind of a daily basis, but, but in ancient times, this is, this is a word that would have been um, highly understood. It was used all the time. And, and so what I want you to think of covenant, think of it as like it's a hybrid between a promise and, and, and a contract, like a binding contract. And so, so if you were making a covenant with someone, um, there would be promises and there would be like a, a legally binding aspect to it. So, so if you're making a covenant, you're kind of assumed to be upholding your part of the deal and, and held accountable actually if, if you don't. And so the reason I'm bringing this idea up, this idea that, that, that covenant is this promise, this hybrid of a promise and, and a legal binding contract is because this wasn't just something that happened in the ancient Near East with people. 
It was something that God often entered into with people himself. He entered into covenants with people, one of which, in particular, was with a guy in the Old Testament named Abram. God eventually renames him to Abraham. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter 12, picking up verse 2. God is speaking to, Yahweh is speaking to this guy, Abraham, and he says this to him. He says, I will make you into a great nation. Now, just some context. It's not like Abram knew Abraham. I'm going to call him Abraham. It's not like Abraham knew who this God was. It's not like he'd been doing all the right stuff and he'd been going through all the mo. No, God just comes to him, kind of seemingly out of nowhere. After a lot of really terrible things have happened in the chapters leading up to this, but God, Yahweh, says to him, he says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make your name great. And, and, and because of that, you will be a blessing. So God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm gonna make you and your family, which by the way, he was married but had no kids, and so this promise is already feeling a little suspect. How is God gonna make me into a great nation to be a blessing? But that's what God promises, And it's really interesting because if you know the story of the Bible, like I said, that things have gone terribly wrong post-Genesis 3 leading up to Genesis 12. And and this of all things is God, it's the beginning of God's solution to fix a broken world. To come to a guy to say, I'm going to make you great so that you can be a blessing. Abraham's family, which eventually becomes the nation of Israel, that's God's plan to redeem a broken world. Now, what I want you to notice is what God doesn't promise Abraham. Notice what what we don't read in these verses at all. He doesn't say that, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make sure that you have a really easy life. Hey, Abraham, I'm going to make sure that, that, that you're really comfortable. He doesn't say, Abraham, I'm going to make sure that you have the best health, that you have no issues. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a bunch of money so that you can just stock it up. He doesn't say any of that. Now, those are all things that we want, right? We want comfort. We want carefree, stress-free, good health, money, good things. We want those things, but that's not what God promises. And in fact, if you know anything about Abraham's story, None of those things are are really what happens in Abraham's life. It's not how his life goes. Abraham's life for a long time is really hard, full of lots of ups and downs, lots of pain. And then we get to this, I don't have it, uh, I'm just going to summarize it. We get to this really bizarre story in Genesis chapter 15, so just a few chapters after this. Um, And when I say bizarre, I mean, this is one of these really weird stories that if you're like reading through the Bible, you're like, Super weird, I'm just going to the next chapter. But this is what happens. God comes to Abraham again, and he says, hey, I want you to go and get some animals. And I want, we're gonna do a sacrifice, and I want you to get these animals. And so Abraham does it. He gets all these animals, and, and he cuts them in half. Super weird, but that's what he does. He cuts them in half, he kills them, cuts them in half, and he lays half of the animals in a line this way, and half of the animals in a line this way. And I know this is weird, but this is, this is how often a, a, a covenant was made. It was called cutting a covenant. You take dead animals lined up in parallel lines, and then whoever you are making a covenant with, you would kind of walk through this makeshift path in between these dead animals, and it was to symbolically say, remember I said part of a covenant is you've got to uphold things, and you'll be held accountable if you don't. 
And so what's happening is this, it's the symbolic way of saying, look, if I don't hold up my end of the deal here, then may I become like them. If I don't do my part of this covenant, then, then may I end up dead like these animals laying on the ground, right? And so again, it's weird, but that's what, that's what Abraham expects. He expects to, God told him to, to lay these, to sacrifice these animals, to lay them down. They're gonna walk. That's what he expects, but there's a twist. And the twist is, is that God puts Abraham right before they walk through this pathway, God puts him into a deep sleep. And while Abraham is in this deep sleep, he has this dream, he has this vision. And in this vision, in this dream, it's God walking through the path of dead animals without Abraham. It's just God, God's alone. This is not something that would have normally happened. And it's, it's this kind of crescendo moment in, in the early chapters of Genesis because what's happening is it's God's way. It wasn't just a random vision. It was God's way of saying, I will uphold my end of the deal even if you don't. I will keep my promise even if you don't, Abraham. I will keep my promise no matter what. Abraham wasn't going to have to spill his blood. God was so committed to his promise of being a blessing to the world that he was willing to walk this path by himself. He was willing to say, I will, I'm so committed to my promise and my promises that I myself am willing to die. If it's necessary, if you don't uphold your end of the deal, I'll still uphold mine. If someone has to die, it'll be me. All the way back in Genesis 15. Now, hopefully, some of you are already going to Jesus, right? But what I want you to see, we're not gonna go there because what I want you to just get is this sense that, that this happened thousands of years before the cross. Because though this is ultimately true, that, that God was willing to die, to stay faithful to his promise, that ultimately is, is, is accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection, it doesn't have, God started that promise thousands of years before the cross. See, what I want you to have a sense of, increasingly so, is that God is a God who does not abandon you. God is a God who is faithful to his promises. He does not abandon his promises. He can't, he won't. It's who he is. This is 2 Timothy 2, uh, chapter, or verse 13. This is Paul writing to Timothy in the New Testament. He says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. If we're faithful, 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 words are hard. If we're faithless, God remains faithful. He can't disown himself. See, Yahweh's faithfulness is intrinsic to who he is. He's faithful even when we're not, even when we're flaky, even when we're selfish, even when we're sinful, Yahweh abounds in love and faithfulness. But again, back to our question. If that's true, why doesn't it always feel like that? If this is who God is, if God is so committed to his promises, why doesn't it always feel like that in my life? In fact, sometimes if we're honest, it feels like the opposite of that, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like God is faithful to us. It feels actually like he's kind of unfaithful. Why does it feel like that? Why is that, 
the case? Well, I think it's because we actually misunderstand what God means when he makes his promises to Abraham. I think that we have a distorted understanding of what God is, is, is actually promising. We assume the things that we want are the things that God is promising us. A, a carefree, a trouble-free, a, a worry-free, a comfortable, some version, whatever your version of the American dream is. We assume, as Western 21st century Christians maybe, that that's what God, that that's what God promises us. This easy life. This wealthy life, this healthy life, but God doesn't promise that at all. It's not what he promised to Abraham. It's not what he promises to us. In fact, Jesus all but guaranteed the exact opposite in your life. So, so look at this verse, John 16, 33. Jesus says, he's speaking to his disciples, and he says, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you and I, if we're going to follow Jesus, in this world that's broken and messed up because of sin, in this world, Jesus says, you and I, we will have trouble, but take heart. For I have overcome the world, Jesus says. See, I think this is one of these verses that, that we tend to skip over. Because it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable to think about this is actually what it might mean to follow Jesus, that I'm going to have some hardship in my life, that I might endure suffering. I, in fact, probably will. It's likely that I will have to go through hardship, have to go through suffering, have to go through pain and hurt. But I think we have to read verses like this. We can't skip over them if we want to have right expectations for what it means to actually follow Jesus. See, you and I will experience real trouble, real hardship, real suffering. I know that's, I know some of you, you're, you're in that right now, man. You're like, dude, if you only knew what I was going through right now. And I don't know the specifics, but I get it. You're going through it, or you will go through it. And when you do, or if you are, what's your, what you're tempted to believe, you're tempted to believe the lie that God is ghosting you, that God doesn't care about you, that you're inadequate, that he wants nothing to do, that it's gotten too messy, it's gotten too hard, you've messed up, you've blown it too badly, that God is just gonna get out and leave you all alone. But it's a massive, genius lie that your enemy wants you to believe. Don't buy it. Don't believe it. God can't abandon you. He hasn't, he won't. It's not who he is. He abounds in love and faithfulness. We just have to have eyes to see it. God abounds in love and faithfulness in your life. We just have to have eyes to see it. And so that's the question. Where have you seen God's faithfulness in your life? I mean, think about that for a second. I wonder if we, how, how often we just kind of hit pause and, and shut out all the distractions and shut out all the noise and, and we just take a moment, even just a moment, to stop and reflect and, and ask the question, God, where, where, where do I see your faithfulness in my life? 
we asked that question several months ago now, back in May, to a handful of you, and, and that was the question, where have you seen God's faithfulness? And, and I was just reminded of this video that we put together and so encouraged by it when I watched it again, I just wanna show it. And so that's what we're gonna, we asked, where have you seen God's faithfulness? And, and this is what many of you said. Let's watch.
what God's doing in your life. And it's amazing. And I don't know about you, and, and, and maybe you were one of the people that answered that, or, or maybe that was new to you, but I don't know about you. I just, I need tangible reminders of what God is up to. I need to see the witness of other people, the witness of God's faithfulness in their lives. It encourages me. It, it challenges me. I need those reminders that God is faithful. But what I want to say is if, 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 if we just stop there, if we just stop with acknowledging it, then I think we miss something. I, I think we miss something that God doesn't want us to miss. Because going back to Abraham, why does God bless Abraham? Why is God faithful to his promise in Abraham's life? To be a blessing in others. And so the question then is, why, does God, why is God faithful to his promises in our lives? Why is God, why does he bless us? Well, so that we can go and do the same for other people. So that we, we're blessed people to be a blessing in the lives of others. See, this idea that God is faithful, it should absolutely cause us to thank him, to praise him, to worship him, because this is who he is. But it should also cause us to act, to respond, to ask ourselves, are we faithful to him? Are we people who are increasingly convicted by our sin? Are we people who are increasingly course correcting when we've gone astray? Are we people who are, 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 are committed to, to living for and following Jesus? Especially when it's hard. See, why did God cause, why did he bless Abraham? To be a blessing. And so the question is, well, who can we go be a blessing for? See, I want you to think about that for a second. Who, who has God put in your life? that you can go and be a blessing to. Maybe it's tonight when you walk out these doors. Maybe you just introduce yourself to someone who obviously doesn't know anyone else. Pull them into your friend group. Maybe it's tomorrow. Who can you be, maybe it's later. Who is God putting in your life that you can be a blessing to? It's gonna be hard. It always is. It's not convenient. Might be awkward, might be, a little uncomfortable, but here's the thing, it's always going to be worth it. It's always going to be worth it. See, God tells us, his promise to us, this is what he's like. He is a God, he is Yahweh. He is 100 committed, 100% committed, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love to generations in your life. And so may we be people who go and do the same for others. Let that be true of us, amen.